Hello? One, two, three. Is that better? Okay, there we go. Sometimes the microphone gets muted, and that's a bad thing, but if there was a face mute, that would be better for y'all if you just block that out. Who knows, right, Keith? Things happen. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're studying today. And what we find in uh, chapter 6 is Paul addressing uh, two problems that existed in the church there. Uh, you might recall that uh, pretty much the entire letter, uh, 16 chapters, uh, are devoted to addressing problems. And we talked about that in introductory remarks and as we've studied these chapters, uh, that the, the church at Corinth was a... Uh, was plagued with uh, a lot of difficulties. And uh, here we have two of them that Paul addresses. The first is um, uh, there were members within the, the Corinthian congregation who were uh, taking other members of the congregation uh, before local uh, civil courts uh, to, <clears throat> to uh, arbitrate... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, sir. Excuse me. To arbitrate uh, certain disputes uh, <clears throat> that they were having, petty matters. And so Paul's going to address that. And then toward the end of the chapter, he's going to address um, uh, sexual sin uh, that, um, <clears throat> and the need for them to keep themselves free from, uh, from fornication. Uh, from sexual sin, not using their bodies for evil purposes. So those are basically the two uh, areas of uh, discussion for chapter 6. And so we'll look at those, uh, go through the text, and then um, after that we'll go back and try to pull out some practical applications. All right, first of all, Christians in court, verses 1 through 8, is how I've outlined uh, the first part of, of the chapter. And Paul's main concern is that uh, these Christians were taking their trivial cases into the courts of the land, taking them before the unrighteous, he'll say, instead of handling these disputes in more private settings. Look at uh, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Uh, look at the end of verse uh, two, uh, he asked the rhetorical question, are you incompetent to try trivial cases or um, uh, the smallest of matters, uh, one translation reads. Uh, and so he offers them a couple of solutions 
in uh, verses 5 and 6. We'll come back to uh, verse 2 in a moment and, and that uh, try to figure out what that means and what it doesn't mean. But um, he offers them a couple of solutions in verses 5 and 6. One uh, is have a wise person uh, that's a member of the congregation to be an arbiter in these disputes, these grievances. Uh, verse 5, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So that's one, one option. The other is uh, to simply uh, allow oneself uh, to be defrauded. Uh, verses uh, 7 and 8, look at 7 specifically. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Um, we'll talk about uh, an application of that uh, in just a moment. But those are his solutions. You've got Christians taking each other to, to court over grievances and what he refers to as the simplest of matters, the smallest of matters, trivial matters. And they're taking them before the unrighteous local courts. Uh, and, um, uh, and so they're, they're basically airing their, uh, their dirty laundry, if you will, before these uh, non-Christians, and it's, it's, really, it's really giving the church a black eye uh, in the city of Corinth because these Christians can't get along with one another and they're taking all these trivial matters before the courts. So Paul says, look, find somebody in the congregation that, you, that, that, that is trustworthy, a wise person that can arbitrate in these matters and work it out in a more private setting or just accept being wronged. And, and go on with, you, with your life, all right? So again, we'll look at practical applications in a moment. Now look at verses 2 and 3. Um, now that we've got kind of the gist of the section, look at verses 2 and 3 and this um, uh, admittedly difficult uh, section. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Um, <clears throat> all right, admittedly, a difficult two verses. But what does it mean? Well, um, anytime you deal with a difficult passage, it's always the, the, the best route always involves starting with what you know. Okay? let the rest of the Bible at least shed some light on certain things, and some things you can, you can dismiss as possibilities because of passages that are not um, difficult, simple passages, easier passages, more straightforward passages, that can at least weed out what he doesn't mean, and then that may leave us with some ideas as to what, what uh, he could be referencing. So let's, let's do that first. It doesn't seem in harmony with the rest of Scripture to conclude that Christians will in some way join with Jesus on Judgment Day in the sentencing process of the unrighteous. I, I don't think the rest of Scripture um, allows for that. Uh, one example, if you look at, at you know, in Matthew 25, in one of the, the Judgment Day scenes that Jesus uh, pictures, um, <clears throat> it pictures that both the righteous and the unrighteous 
are, um, are on the receiving end of, of judgment and sentencing. Uh, Matthew 25, uh, 31 and 32, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd uh, separates uh, the sheep from the goats. And then He goes through that, that, um, that scene. But the idea is, you know, when we stand before the Lord to be judged on that day, that's, that's what's going to happen is he's going to be the one judging and both the righteous and the unrighteous are going to be in his presence receiving judgment, uh, not, uh, not meeting it out. Um, uh, Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 uh, paints the same picture. Uh, John sees a, 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 the great, a great white throne and one seated upon it, and everyone, all the nations, everybody's gathered before that throne to receive judgment and sentencing. So when he says, don't you know that we will judge the world and judge angels, I don't think that's what he means by that. Um, so what does he mean? <clears throat> well, first of all, recognize that the word judge the word that's translated judge there, can mean um, the idea of, of to arbitrate uh, in, in, in certain matters, but it also can be accurately translated condemn. Uh, that, and, so, and, and I think that's more what he's getting at. Don't you realize that we, Christians, are to condemn the world? And, and in a sense, angels. I think the idea is, is going to be ultimately the angels that, um, uh, that are guilty of sin, which some of them have been. Peter mentions that, and Jude does too. I think what best fits the rest of, of New Testament context is, um, can be illustrated by a couple of other passages. Luke chapter 11 if you want to hold your place in 1 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> Luke chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. Luke eleven thirty-one, 31, beginning, Jesus says, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus is saying there is that when you compare... In, in this context, when you compare the people of Nineveh, for example, to those that were uh, not receptive to Jesus and his message, he's saying the people of Nineveh, by their actions, shine a light of condemnation on the actions of this generation because the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And you've got one greater than Jonah who's here, and you're rejecting him. And so their actions, by being righteous and holy, condemn your actions because they're unrighteous. All right? So it's not, that they're going to, it's not that the people of Nineveh are going to be standing right alongside Jesus and pronouncing 
sentencing on the unrighteous, he's saying their actions condemn your actions. They repented at Jonah's preaching, but you're rejecting the preaching of someone greater than even Jonah. Their actions condemn yours. How about Hebrews 11, verse 7? As another example. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's actions condemned the world because Noah was being obedient to God. The rest of the world was not. His actions condemned theirs. That's why a lot of times Christians are the recipient of persecution. Because when Christians live lives of righteousness, it condemns, it shines the light of truth on unrighteous behavior and condemns that behavior. And when people's evil behavior is condemned, they don't normally take kindly to that. And so they may lash out at Christians whose lives condemn their evil behavior. So when you go back to 1 Corinthians 6, it's my judgment that that's the idea that Paul is getting across here to the Corinthians. The lives of righteous people condemn the lives of wicked people because they show such a contrast between their attitudes and their actions. Right? That's what's supposed to be the case. And here's the key to 1 Corinthians 6. It is supposed to be the case that, that the righteous behavior of Christians shines a light on the evil behavior of the world and shows such a contrast between them that the evil behavior is condemned by the righteous behavior of Christians. But was that happening in Corinth? No, it wasn't. Paul is saying, don't you realize that we Christians are, are to be in the position of condemning, casting judgment by our lives on the unrighteous? That's what's supposed to be happening. But the way you're conducting yourself, by dragging each other into small claims court to air out all this dirty laundry, you're not showing yourself to be any different from the world. And so you're not operating in the position that you should be operating in as, as Christians living lives of truth that shines a, a condemning light on evil behavior. We're supposed to be doing that, is his point. And to them, he's saying, you're not. Don't you realize, that's the nature of his question, that this is what's supposed to be the case? But they weren't acting that way, hence his rebuke of them. So I think that's what he means by that when he says, don't you know that we're to judge angels, that we're to judge the world? Our lives are supposed to shine the light on the world and in the process condemn its evil. But you're acting more like the world and not showing that contrast that you're supposed to show. That's my take on that. Yeah, Alan. You know, there, there are a couple of things that are interesting about this. It, it seems like in, in the Corinthians case, it was more a matter of winning than it was what was right or wrong. Yeah. Because he talks about you allowing yourself to be defrauded or cheated. But then he also says in verse 8, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. Yeah. So... It's not always the righteous who are being 
defrauded, it's the person who says, I'm going to win this. I don't care if I have to cheat to win it too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're no better than the ones who would cheat you if you cheat them. <clears throat> yeah. The other thing I thought about was this. It wouldn't have done much good to allow yourself to be defrauded if you went all over the brotherhood telling everybody how you'd been cheated. Yeah. And how sorry that person was who cheated. There's, there's not much glory in that. Yeah. Yeah. Two good points. Alan's making the point, in case you weren't able to, to, to hear that, that... Um, that the Corinthians were not only, um, that, that really their motivation seems to have been that they're going to win at whatever cost, right? If Whatever this dispute, uh, he referred to it as a um, uh, grievance in verse 1, whatever that was, they, they were bent on getting satisfaction and winning at whatever cost, even to the point, verse 8, of going to the complete opposite. He said, why not let yourself be frauded, be defrauded? But you're not only not doing that, you're in the process of cheating and defrauding others, even your own brethren. So they were, they were, they were willing to, to cheat themselves. They were willing to, to involve themselves in cheating for the purpose of getting their satisfaction, getting their pound of flesh uh, in court. And, um, and, and that was... That was the major attitude problem. And then he added, and rightly so, that, uh, that this idea of them allowing themselves to be defrauded uh, is basically the idea of, look, let, sometimes for the sake of, of unity and harmony, forego your right. We'll talk about that a little more in a moment. But what, there, there would be no advantage or no glory, certainly to God, if you allowed yourself to be defrauded, but then just publicized it everywhere about uh, about how you were defrauded and and uh, and how this person treated you and uh, and all of that, he's basically saying sometimes you just need to forego your rights and drop the matter, leave it, and and not keep stirring it up. Yeah, Ken. Yeah, yeah. If if in situations like this. Which clearly were not matters. It, it, there's there's no indication in this that these were matters that involved, um, uh, you know, right and wrong, moral these moral atrocities or anything like that. These were these were personal differences between individuals, and sometimes to press those things uh, to 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 the to the extreme end that they were puts a person in a position of being wrong for so doing. All right, so that's Christians in court. Now let's look at Christians in the world, verses 9 through 20. <clears throat> All right, and where he basically ended it in 7 and 8 was, was in his rebuke of them acting like the world. And so even though the Corinthian Christians were acting like people of the world, they shouldn't have been. Why? Because they had left all of that behind, or should have. That's 9 through 11. They had been washed. They had been sanctified, set apart from the way of life that they once had lived. Know ye not? Do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But what does that have to do with them? They're acting unrighteous. By doing what they were doing to each other, they were showing 
evidence not of righteousness and truth, but unrighteousness. They were showing evidence of the kinds of things that they should have left behind when they became Christians. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, uh, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The point there is, <clears throat> if they continue to act in those ways, including swindling, the last thing that he mentions there in that list, which is evidently what they were trying to do in these courts, if they continue to act that way, they're acting in, in ways that will, uh, that will keep them ultimately out of the kingdom. And he said, but you shouldn't be acting that way because these are, the, these are the very things that you were washed from. These are the very things that you were forgiven from. The very things that you left behind, and so you need to act like you've left them behind. Now in verses 12 and 13, you have another couple of verses that, that admittedly offer some difficulty. I mentioned this, I think, in passing last week where Paul says in verse 12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. So what is all of that? Well, the question is, and this is where Bible students uh, sometimes differ, the question is, is Paul affirming the statement that all things are lawful? Or is he quoting the Corinthians and then responding to their motto? In other words, is he quoting the Corinthians who were the ones who were saying, all things are lawful for me? And then he responds to that. But wait a minute. <laughs> Not all things build up. And if all things don't build up and edify, then how can all things be lawful? All things are lawful, he says again. But I'll not be dominated by anything. And so if you allow yourself to be dominated by something, to where you're no longer in control of it, but it's in control of you, how can that be right? Okay. So that's the question. Is Paul affirming everything's lawful? Or is he quoting their motto for life, the way they live, and then responding to it? I think it's the second option. I think Paul is quoting the Corinthians, that this was, their, this was the way they lived life, this was the way they were making their decisions based upon this principle, all things are lawful. And then Paul is responding to that by saying, wait a minute. Let me read to you a quote um, that, that I th think helps to explain this um, uh, as, I, as I understand what he's saying. And... Um, Maybe it'll help, uh, maybe it says it better than I can, from Leon uh, Morris. He says, it looks like a catchphrase the Corinthians used to justify their conduct, possibly one that they had derived from Paul's teaching when he was among them. He would perhaps have said something like this by way of an assertion of Christian freedom over against Jewish legalism and the like. The Corinthians, however, were taking Christian liberty to mean 
not an unbounded opportunity to show the scope of love, but an incredible means of gratifying their own desires. Here's what Morris is, is saying, and I think, I think there's some merit to that. Is it the case, is it not the case that, that Paul and, and other New Testament writers and speakers make the point that there is freedom to be enjoyed in Christ? Well, sure. And, and didn't Paul and others uh, preach against uh, bringing a legalistic uh, mindset and attitude out of Judaism and bringing it into the church? Sure. And so Paul preached against that concept of, uh, of uh, legalistic bondage and that there's freedom from that in Christ. Well, <clears throat> some people today have taken that concept and have uh, espoused the false idea that because the Bible speaks of there being freedom in Christ, that therefore um, we don't need to be concerned about how we conduct ourselves. We don't need to be concerned about how we live. There's freedom in Christ. Well, that's not what freedom in Christ is about. That's not what freedom in Christ means. It, freedom is not license to sin. And Paul will even say that in the Galatian letter, in Galatians chapter 5. Don't use your freedom as license to commit iniquity, because that's not what it is. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1. May it never be. Perhaps that's what the Corinthians had done. In the process of Paul preaching and teaching them about there being freedom in Christ and counteracting some of this Jewish legalism that would find its way into the church, perhaps some of them took that concept of freedom in Christ and pulled it out and applied it more broadly than what Paul had ever intended for it to be applied. And so they had reached this conclusion, well, all things are lawful. And so Paul's responding to that by saying, wait a minute. If all things are lawful, and yet here are some things that do not fit what God wants things to do to build up and all of that, then how can all things be lawful? And so if Paul had used a similar phrase or, or, or had, had taught the concept, he would have used those concepts in a specific context, and the Corinthians were guilty of taking those statements and applying them more broadly than what they were intended. And so Paul's responding to that by saying, look, the body was not meant for immorality, for iniquity, for sin. And incidentally, probably that phrase in verse 13, that statement, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, probably another uh, Corinthian uh, motto. In other words, look, whatever the body was designed for, then we should be able to do. Whatever God designed the body to do, then we should be. The food was meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, so let's go. Well, they evidently were taking that motto and applying it to um, sexual gratification. If the body was designed for that, if God designed the body for that, then we should, we should indulge it. And Paul is countering that whole concept. And so he says in verse 13, in response, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul says, yeah, and God's going to destroy both one and the other. In other words, those things are not going to last. This whole, you know, you, you, you say food, you know, food is, is for this and the body is for this. And he says, wait a minute, God's going to destroy all that eventually. And so here's what the body is for and not for. End of verse 13, the body is not meant for fornication 
body is not meant for sexual sin, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. They were elevating these physical desires and things associated with the body that in and of themselves are not wrong. Anything wrong with food? Anything wrong with eating? Right? God created our bodies in such a way that they need food to survive. Food is not the problem. When food becomes the master and not the servant, that's when it's a problem. Same thing with sexual uh, matters. God designed us as sexual beings. There's not anything wrong with that. Okay? What becomes the problem is when sex becomes the master and not the servant. When we begin to try to satisfy those desires, those God-given desires, when we try to satisfy them in ways that are outside of God's will, that's where the problem is. And that's evidently where the Corinthians had not properly distinguished all of this. They were simply indulging in these uh, pursuits of, of these physical desires without any... Um, with, without any uh, respect for the boundaries in which God said to pursue those desires. And so Paul says, look, the body was not meant for sexual sin, for immorality, for fornication. Yes, the body was designed as a sexual thing, and that's a part of being human, but it wasn't designed for sexual sin, and that was where they were making their mistake. And so, 14... And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute, a harlot? May it never be. Never. All right, and so Paul, the Corinthians had adopted this all things are lawful view, and Paul counters that their bodies are one day going to be raised just like the Lord's body was. And the fact that our bodies will one day be raised implies that we will account for how we've used those bodies. In other words, it's not going to be like the materialist uh, claims that once we die, that's it. That's the end of our existence. What's, you know, you're dead like Rover, right? You're dead all over. That's it. No, Paul says those bodies are going to be raised, implying... We're going to stand before God to give an account. So the body was meant for the Lord, and those bodies are going to be raised. So, therefore, we need to be concerned about how we use these bodies. Okay, we are members of Christ, verse 15. Um, Fifteen through 17. Verse 18, our bodies are... Uh, the dwelling place of God's Spirit. And so his point there in, in bringing up the fact that we are members of Christ, we are joined to Christ, and we also have a, have a connection with, we are joined with God's Spirit. Therefore, if that's the case, then we need to be concerned about how we use these bodies. Because God's concerned about that. And so flee, verse 18. Flee fornication. Flee sexual sin. And, verse 20, glorify God in your body. That's how you need to use your body. It's not, it's not that the body was meant for food or the body was meant for sexual fulfillment. No, the body's meant for the Lord. 
And so glorify God in how you use your body. It's not about following yourself and following whatever desire may, may, you know, may take you in whatever direction. We're not animals. Self-control, use your body to bring honor and glory to God. All right? Application. Here we go. Number one. Some of this we've covered uh, a little bit in our uh, discussion already. I want to offer this caution. The prohibition against going to court, I don't believe would imply that any and all legal actions involving brethren are wrong. Okay? Let me explain that. First of all, I would say that because Paul specifically identifies the kind of thing he's talking about. And he refers to it as the smallest of matters. The most trivial of cases. These personal grievances that you have. Uh, I've always likened that to what we would call small claims court. And I've used the example, you know, just just say for the sake of example, that that Alan borrows my uh, my lawnmower. And, um, uh, And... after, you know, after a few days, I ask him, you know, if he's through with my lawnmower because I need it for my yard. And, and, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get that back to you. And then nothing happens. And then I ask him again for my lawnmower. And he just kind of plays it off. And, and, and ultimately, it gets to the point where he just won't give me my lawnmower back. Now, would I have the legal right... To, to, to take him before the justice of the peace and try to, to get this grievance worked out. Would I have the legal right to do that? Sure. But would that be the best thing for the two of us and for the church, for the two of us to be standing before some civil ruler arguing over a lawnmower? Could there not be someone in the congregation here wise enough that we both trusted that could arbitrate between this and figure out who's in the right and who's in the wrong? Yeah, probably. And if that can't be done, it would be better for me to just say, you know what, Alan, keep the lawnmower. It's, it's, not, worth, it's not worth the division. It's not worth the problem. Let, let myself be defrauded. Let him have the lawnmower because it's not worth it. Those seem to be the kinds of things that Paul's talking about. Let me give you an example. What if a, and this has happened before, what if a disciplined member of the congregation, someone who's a member of the church but is living in persistent sin and it reaches the point where the church has no choice but to withdraw fellowship from that person, and then that person sues the church? Would the church have the right not just legally, but the right biblically, to defend itself in court so that this person doesn't take everything that, that, that belongs to the church? Would the church have the, have the right, biblically, would they be okay with God to defend itself in a court of law in a situation like that? I say yes, they would. Um, what if a member of, you know, God forbid, but what if a member of this congregation turns from living a faithful Christian life to a life uh, of homosexuality and wants to, and, and all of a sudden, and, and this becomes news to us all of a sudden, and we find out about it because this individual wants to have a wedding ceremony in this building. And we refuse. And then that individual takes the church to court. 
would we have a right, biblically speaking, to defend ourselves under those circumstances? Or do we just have to sit back and say, well, take the building, take the property, take everything because we can't go to court with somebody who's a member of the church? I don't think that's what Paul is condemning in 1 Corinthians 6. I think he's condemning these trivial, insignificant matters. How about this? Is there such a thing as scriptural divorce? Sure. Matthew 19, what if you've got two Christians, again, and it's happened. You don't want to see it happen, but it does. Two Christians, two members of the church, one spouse commits adultery. Now, the Lord says that if, if, if the innocent spouse in that situation wants to put away the guilty spouse, they have a right to do that and then contract another marriage. Well, in our culture, there's, there's a part of that process that involves legal action, doesn't it? And so if that innocent spouse puts away the guilty spouse... They have to go through a court proceeding, don't they? What is that? That's a lawsuit. But because they're both Christians, are we saying that they, don't, that, that they can't do that for fear of violating 1 Corinthians 6? No, I don't think that's a violation of 1 Corinthians 6. So I don't think it fits into the category of the thing that Paul is condemning here. So I don't think, it's my judgment, that 1 Corinthians 6 implies that any and every kind of court proceeding that involves members of the church is, is a wrong thing to do. I think there are circumstances where it is a right thing to do. Um, but what Paul's condemning are things that could have been handled privately between the individuals. And they were taking these trivial matters and taking them before heathen courts. And that was, that was the problem. Next. We talked about this. Sometimes for the sake of unity, the right thing to do is forego one's right. We talked about that. We won't, uh, we won't belabor that point. Um, next, even though there are grievous sins that will keep a person out of the kingdom, those sins can be removed and washed away. That's verses 10 and 11. Next, God cares how we use our bodies. We talked about this a little bit. Our bodies house, if you will, our spirits. God forms the spirit of man within him. The wording of Zechariah 12, verse 1. Uh, and the body without the spirit is dead. James 2, 26. And so the, core, the, the, you know, the opposite of that, the body with the spirit in it is therefore alive. And so our bodies house our spirits. And those bodies, these bodies, will one day be raised from the dead. Paul will talk about that again in chapter 15 when he talks about the resurrection. We'll get there eventually. Um, but th that being the case, that is Paul's line of argumentation for saying you need to be concerned about how you use your body. And so we need to give due consideration to the things that we do with our bodies and to our bodies. To, to decide, to, to figure out whether or not we're engaging in perhaps destructive habits that don't bring honor and glory to God. Um, now I understand, because the Bible's clear on this, our bodies are going to 
decay. They're in the process of decaying. The outward man is perishing. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. And so, and it doesn't matter, ultimately, uh, you know, how many, how many miles uh, you run, you know, how much weight you lift, uh, you know, how many push-ups you do, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, none of those things are going to keep us from dying, all right, okay? All, that's going to happen. But in the process, there, there's a principle that we need to be concerned about whether or not we are showing God honor and glory by, the, by how we use our bodies, by what we do to and with our bodies. And so it needs to be given some due consideration. Next. <clears throat> Interesting thing in verses 15 through 18, where Paul makes the case that the sin of fornication, sexual sin, involves the body in ways that other sins do not. Notice how he, verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the fornicator sins against his own body. If our bodies are members of Christ, and they are, verse 15, then Paul makes the case, if that's, if that's true, then it is unthinkable to take that same body and join it to a prostitute. Now, especially in that context, if, join, if that joining involved a temple prostitute and pagan worship, which was a, a, a reality in Corinth. But taking, taking your body that's joined to Christ, that's the temple of God's Spirit, and joining that body in a sexual way to anyone that you're not authorized to be joined to is a sin in a way that other sins are not. Not saying it's worse necessarily, as far it's certainly not as far as as you know what will happen eternally. Any sin can keep you out of heaven, is my point. But this one is different in some significant ways. Paul's usage of language in this section. I think drives home the point that there is really no such thing as what is often terminology that's often used in our culture. You ever hear the words casual sex? Paul's language here indicates there is no such thing as that. Our culture just looks, ah, it's just, you know, it's just casual. You know, you have the, you know, two, two people that, um, you know, that... Uh, like each other, or whatever they've gone out a few times, and and, uh, uh, and then they end up, you know, being intimate with each other. And people talk about it in our culture. It's just it's just casual sexual relations. Well, biblically speaking, there's no such thing as that. The sexual union is the most intimate of all unions, and that's the point Paul's making here. Um, and that makes sexual sin different from other sins. Again, not necessarily worse as far as the eternal consequences of it, but different, and, and, and certainly could be argued that it's worse as far as the temporal consequences of sexual sin are concerned. How difficult is it? And I'm thankful to God that I, that I don't know the answer to this question. And I, and I have great um, 
sympathy for those who have had to deal with it. But how difficult is it for a spouse to deal with the sexual sin of their spouse? I can't answer that, but I've talked to a lot of people that have been faced with that, with that problem, with that issue. And, um, and that, that sin is of such a nature because of the relationship that is supposed to be involved in, in sexual intimacy makes that sin a lot harder to, to deal with than, say, other sins. And I don't think it's by accident that that is the sin, singular, for which God said, okay, the marriage bond can be dissolved and another one formed if, if this sin comes into play. I don't think that's by accident. It's that kind of a relationship. And so Paul says, look, <laughs> flee sexual sin. It's that serious. Verse 18. Yes, yeah. I hadn't thought enough about this. I thought of it earlier. In chapter 6, if their attitude toward their own sexual morality was wrong, that may help to explain somewhat their attitude in chapter 5 about an immoral person within, yep. them, within their group because yep. they didn't have the right attitude toward morality. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the connection between chapter 6 and chapter 5. Chapter 5, they had the, the man living in, in a sexually immoral relationship. They weren't doing anything about it. And chapter 6 may explain why that was the case, because a lot of them were involving themselves in sexual sin themselves and weren't doing anything about it. That's a good point. All right, we're out of time today. Um, chapter 7, next week, Lord willing, where they Paul begins to address questions that involve marriage. So. Uh, a lot of information in chapter 7. Thank you much.